Kennedy reading in Daniel 8 in the English Standard Version. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, the vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the providence of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the uh, Ula Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. As he did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat was conspicuous horns between his eyes, and he came to the ram with two horns, which I had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him and his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of there, instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even in the host of heaven. And some of the host and, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw the truth to ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary of the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful site. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulaf and, and called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened. He fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for a time and the end of the end. And when he, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for its reference to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. 
and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. His power shall be great, but now, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and, cause, uh, and, and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the, people are, and the people who are saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even arise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. But by no human hand. The vision of the evening and the morning, they are being told in truth, but sealed up the vision, for it referenced to many days from now. And I, Daniel, have over, was overcome and laid sick for several days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the visions and did not understand it. Is the Bible supernatural? Is the Bible supernatural and is God sovereign? Now, for a chapter with such strange visions in it, this chapter asks us those two very straightforward questions. Is the Bible supernatural and is God sovereign? Now, these visions that we find here in Daniel chapter 8, they're authoritatively interpreted for us by the angel Gabriel. And as an interesting side note, Gabriel is one of only two named angels in the entire Bible. In Luke chapter 1, this same Gabriel is the one who we find appears to Zechariah to prophesy the birth of John the Baptist. And then he appears to Mary to prophesy the birth of Jesus. So this Gabriel is sent by the Lord to authoritatively interpret for Daniel the meaning of these strange visions. And we find it unsurprisingly... The animals in the visions represent nations. We still do this today. The bald eagle represents America. The brown bear represents Russia. The Gaelic rooster represents France. The tiger represents India. And does anyone here know what animal represents Scotland? The unicorn. The unicorn. Seriously, how did that pass quality control? Yes, so the unicorn represents Scotland. But just as in our day, in Daniel's day, nations were often represented by animals. And in the authoritative interpretation, we're told that this ram with two horns rep represented the Medo-Persian Empire. And as we discussed last week, horns are symbols of power or kings or kingdoms. And on this ram, the horn that was higher represented the more dominant kingdom of Persia. Now, that kingdom burst onto the world scene, we know. It conquered not only Babylon, but it crashed westward and northward and southward. It conquered, it expanded, and seemingly it was unstoppable. No one could stand in the way of its expansion. However, the vision shifts, and a goat with a conspicuous or a notable horn between its eyes comes charging from the west. I actually have a picture of this goat. Samuel, could you put that up on the screen? There we go. So you might be able to see there's a goat. I just wanted to show this to you because this is what you missed if you weren't at pumpkin carving last night. 
So thank you, Dan Smiley, for carving the goat with the conspicuous horn between its eyes. That's very well done. But the goat with the conspicuous horn comes charging from the west. It says that the goat comes so quickly it doesn't even seem to touch the ground. And what happens? The goat collides with the ram and destroys the ram utterly. And Gabriel interprets that for us, the goat is the kingdom of Greece. And we know the conspicuous horn is the king that we today call Alexander the Great. Now, a general, he was a general of the Greek army by the age of 21, and he moved fast. He had conquered virtually the entire known world by the time he was 26 years old. We don't know if it's true or if it's just the folklore that's grown up around Alexander the Great, but it's said that when he realized there was no one left to conquer, he sat down and he wept. He was a vicious and a quick and a fast conqueror. However, for just as fast as this goat appears on the scene to conquer, he is conquered. He, quickly and suddenly, the great horn in the vision is broken, and we know that Alexander the Great unexpectedly died at the age of only 33 years old, probably from malaria or typhoid fever. And because Alexander had no heir after him to which he would give the kingdom, the Greek kingdom was divided. Verse 8 says there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So this could simply be representing that the kingdom was fragmented, like we might say it was scattered to the four winds. And the kingdom was, it was fragmented. Or it could point to the fact that the Greek empire was divided amongst Alexander's four generals after his death. Now, before we get into the little horn who dominates the remainder of this vision, and like the fourth beast in the last vision in chapter 7 is actually the main concern, I just want to stop here and note, friends, everything in this vision is historically accurate. Everything that Daniel saw came to pass just as it was seen by Daniel and interpreted by Gabriel. And note that in verse 1, it indicates Daniel received this vision in the third year of the reign of King Belteshazzar of Babylon, which was about 550 B.C. Friends, Alexander the Great conquered the mighty Persian Empire between 334 and 331 B.C. So these events that Daniel foresaw were 200 years in the future. Daniel didn't live to see any of this. Some of the events that Daniel specifically and accurately hears here, sees here, didn't come to pass during his lifetime. And this has come and caused some to challenge Daniel's authorship of this book. You see, the prophecy in here is so accurate that those who think the Bible is not supernatural, those who think that the Bible is merely some human creation, they say that this book and its visions must have been written actually after the events unfolded because they're so accurate. And friends, if you begin with a presupposition that these words are not supernatural, that they're not divine in nature, that the Bible is merely a compilation of human words grasping to understand God, then such miraculous foretelling is truly unthinkable. And so some interpreters say that this book is not from the 6th century when Daniel actually lived, but this was written in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who we're going to talk about, when he was oppressing God's people. And those who say that, they say that the actual authors of this document simply put these visions 
into the mouth of the great hero, Daniel. And they say that these visions were put into the mouth of Daniel not to predict the future. They were put into the mouth of Daniel after the fact to interpret and understand what they were currently experiencing. So, friends, this chapter, with its specific details and accurately fulfilled predictions, it begs the question of us, is the Bible supernatural? Is the book that you hold in your hands or the text that you read on your phone, are these the divinely inspired words of God? Is God supernaturally announcing ahead of time what was going to pass, or Is the Bible merely a collection of human words written about God, trying to explain and interpret history, but powerless to foretell it? Church, we believe. We believe that the Bible is supernatural. That what you possess is not merely words about God, but this is the very word of God. And as such, we believe that foretelling and before-the-fact prophecy is possible. In fact, God actually claims to be a God who can do such things. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, the Lord says that He declares the end from the very beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Friends, the Lord has spoken from long ago, and all that He's spoken has come to be. His counsel stands, His purposes are accomplished, His promises are kept. And more than just claiming it, God has backed it up time and time again. In fact, next week when we get into Daniel chapter 9, we're going to find the prophecy that the Lord spoke through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapters 25 and 29, and then also Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, foretell a king named Cyrus who would one day arise and bring an end to the exile of God's people after 70 years of uh, captivity. And friends, that's exactly what happened. The Lord speaks the end from the beginning, and He declares what will come to pass. When King Solomon first dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he reminded Israel of God's sovereignty and God's promises and God's faithfulness. When he dedicated the temple, he prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to His people Israel according to all that He promised. Not one word has failed of all His good promises which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Friends, everything that the Lord speaks, he has done. Everything that the Lord foretells comes to be. The Lord foretold his people, you will come to rest. I will deliver you and you will rest. And he fulfilled his good promises. God can, God does, and God will. He foretells the end from the beginning because He alone is God. And church, we know that God did this for us most perfectly in the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you realize that conservatively, conservatively, Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies of His earthly ministry? Friends, that's statistically impossible. 
My daughter Abigail is currently reading Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, which if you haven't read it, you should. Lee Strobel interviewed a mathematician, and he was seeking to understand, so what are the odds that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, could show up on the scene and fulfill 300 Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah? And the mathematician declared that the probability of just eight prophecies, only eight, was one chance in 100 million billion. I don't know about you, million billion is a little too big for me to think of. So he gave a great illustration. He goes, if you took this number, 100 million billion of silver dollars, they would cover the state of Texas to a depth of two feet. If you marked one silver dollar among them, then had a blindfolded person wander the entire state and then bend down and pick up just one coin, the odds that he would choose the one marked coin are the exact same odds that anyone in history could have fulfilled eight of the prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled 300 of them. Friends, the Bible is supernatural. God can tell you the end from the beginning. And not one of his promises have failed, nor will they ever fail. There is no reason to reject Daniel as the author of this book because of how accurate these predictions are. Friends, the accuracy of these predictions simply confirm the divinity of this revelation. The Bible is supernatural. This, these aren't just human words about God that you hold in your hand. This is God's supernatural word to us. God revealing himself, his purpose, his person, his plan, his promises. So Daniel chapter 8 makes clear that both the Bible is supernatural, church. And it also makes clear that God is sovereign over the unfolding of human history. Friends, the reason why God can tell the end from the beginning is because he's the author of history. I don't know if you noticed, we've repeatedly celebrated this in song this morning. We opened by singing, All history shall bow before your throne. Time and space on bended knee shall come. Friends, time and space bend their knee before God because He created them and history is unfolding according to His plan. We celebrated that there's none above Him, none before Him, all of time in His hand. My God is the Ancient of Days. Friends, the Bible is supernatural because it is the very word of the ancient of days. So the visions of Daniel 8, they can foretell the future in accurate detail because God is sovereign over the future. He's sovereign over the unfolding of human history. And church, just take a moment and just drink in that truth. If God is sovereign, if God is sovereign over the rising and fallen of kings and nations, as we see in Daniel, is God not sovereign over you and over all the things that concern you? Jesus came and he taught in Matthew chapter 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Friends, the God who is sovereign over the rising of nations is the God who is sovereign over the falling of a sparrow, is the God who is sovereign over you. 
as we sang, God of the ages, history's maker, planning our pathway and holding us fast, shaping in mercy, in his mercy, all that concerns us. Father, we praise you, Lord of the past. Friends, this truth should give us hope. This truth should give us hope because you need to understand our world can only be one of two ways. Our world can only be one of two ways. Either this world is random, chaotic, unpredictable, and out of anyone's control, which means that you are completely at the whims of chance and the will of the powerful, or this world is guided by the sovereign and benevolent hand of God. Friends, one understanding of this world leaves us hopeless. Because that means that you and I are simply victims of blind chance. And there is no reason for you and I to hope. Because we can never hope to find meaning or purpose or redemption in randomness. However, friends, if God is sovereign, if God's sovereign over history, if He's planning our pathways, if He's holding us fast, then there is a reason to hope that we might find meaning, purpose, redemption. Even if we don't understand why. Even when we don't get what we prayed for. Even when we suffer pain and loss. There is reason that we can still cling to hope. If we still believe God is sovereign and God is good. Then we can still hope even though His purposes might be currently hidden from us. But we can trust that God's purposes are good. Our pain is not pointless. And that what we face somehow represents Him shaping in mercy all that concerns us. Friends, what kind of a world do we live in? Do we live in a world ruled by randomness and chance and hopelessness? Or do we live in a world ruled by a sovereign and good God? Do you have hope? Now, friends, I would love to land the plane right there and walk off the runway. But I'd be negligent not to talk about the little horn, because he's actually the main point of the vision. Just like we saw in the last chapter, in the vision of chapter 7, the fourth beast was the main focus. Well, in this vision, this little horn is the main event. The ram and the goat, for as fun as they are, are really just the opening act. They're the opening act leading us to the main event, which is this little horn. And we need to begin by considering, okay, so to what time period does this vision and this little horn refer? Verses 17 and 19, if you look at those, says this vision concerns the time of the end. Verse 26 declares that this vision is for many days from now. And some have taken this to mean that this is a vision of the end times, of the second return of Jesus Christ. But friends, neither does the language demand this, nor does the flow of the vision invite us to think that. Time of the end doesn't have to mean the end of all things. It can simply refer to the end of an empire, or, or the end of, time, or the end of a, an era, or the end, as it says in verse 19, the end of indignation. Or it can simply be a phrase meaning the distant future. And friends, whatever Daniel sees here was clearly the distant future to him. It was at least hundreds of years in his future. Uh, moreover, some insert gaps of time into the visions we find in Daniel that push Daniel's visions into the far future, specifically the time of Christ's second coming. 
But friends, a straightforward reading of Daniel's visions, it's hard to find those gaps between, say, the third and fourth beast of Daniel 7 or the fourth beast in his little horn. There's no gap that seems to be between the conspicuous horn, the four horns, and the little horn in this vision. And next week in Daniel 9, I struggle to see an obvious gap between the 69th and 70th week of the prophecy that we're going to find there. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. I was talking to those of you that do know what I'm talking about. Well, much of the imagery of Daniel's visions is recycled and reused for us in the book of Revelation, that doesn't mean that all of Daniel's visions were visions of Christ's second coming. Moreover, we saw a little horn in the previous section, in the previous vision of chapter 7, and some might be tempted to think, okay, little horn there, little horn here, maybe the same person. But I think there's good reason to believe that these visions are not exactly the same thing. So let's talk about what we do see here. In this vision, chapter 8, we're told the goat's the kingdom of Greece. It follows the conspicuous horn, which is broken, Alexander the Great. And because Alexander had no heir, he died, kingdom divided, given to control of his generals. And that's represented by the four horns. And one of those generals, his name was Seleucius Nicator, who governed what is Syria, and he became the first in the line of the Seleucid king. And years after him, a Seleucid king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes came to power, and this was about 175 B.C. Now, if Daniel received his vision at the end of Belshazzar's reign in about 550 B.C., then the results, then the events prophesied here unfolded about 375 years after Daniel. So again, his distant future. And this king Antiochus, he was aggressive, and especially towards what Daniel calls in verse 9, the glorious land. Whenever we see that glorious land, that refers to Israel with its capital of Jerusalem. By the time this this king Antiochus had risen to power, Israel had been returned from exile to her land. The temple had been rebuilt. Worship had been restored. The Jewish people were having a time of relative prosperity. However, this king Antiochus rose. And this king was hungry for power. He sought to expand his dominion to include Palestine. And when this king was opposed, he regularly vented his rage on the Jewish people. History tells us that he wantonly massacred tens of thousands of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He regularly slaughtered Jewish worshippers. And in approximately 167 B.C., Antiochus defiled the temple in Jerusalem. On the altar of burnt offering, he sacrificed a pig. The pig, in Jewish thinking, was considered to be one of the most unclean animals. So to sacrifice a pig on the altar was to utterly defile it. Antiochus put in power his own traitorous high priest, and he set up a statue to Zeus in the temple to the Lord. And as such, Antiochus disrupted the daily sacrifice in the temple worship. He forbade the Jews from circumcising their male infants. He outlawed possession of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Sabbath and other feast days were outlawed and profaned, and the people were prohibited from practicing the laws of Torah. Friends, such rebellion was not only against humans, clearly. This was an attack on God Himself. A rebellion against God and His authority. And just as the little horn in the vision that Daniel sees grew great, and it says, trampled the host of heaven, so this Antiochus went to war with God's order and rule, symbolized by the throwing down of stars which God put into place, His order, 
his rule brought to the chaos. Antiochus threw down what God had established and he trampled on it. And so it says in Daniel's vision in verse 11, the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And verse 12 tells us the little horn threw truth to the ground and that's what Antiochus Epiphanes declared to do. Because friends, understand, this ruler, his name was actually Antiochus IV. His name was Antiochus IV, but he gave himself a title, Epiphanes. That's his own name. He gave that to himself. And it's a blasphemous title. It means Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, the illustrious God. He named himself a God. And he set himself to make war on the true God of heaven and earth. So this little horn rose to not only oppress God's people, but to try to overthrow and replace God himself and to impose his own order and law. And friends, this was a horrible vision. You see how disturbed Daniel is repeatedly in receiving this vision? For those of you that are out there going, God, I just want you to speak to me. God was speaking to Daniel. It's not very pretty. For as horrible as this vision was, And for as horrible as it would have been for Daniel to receive this, Daniel hears a little bit of hope given in the middle of the vision. In verses 11 through 14, Then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another one said to the one who spoke, For how long? For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, 2,000 evening and mornings, if that means days, is about six years. And if so, it could represent the entire period of Antiochus' oppression. Um, Or, some have noted that the phrase morning and evening could refer to the morning and evening sacrifice. And exactly how many sacrifices were going to be missed. Because the sanctuary had been defiled. So how many sacrifices from the defilement of the sanctuary till it's cleansed and sacrifices are again restored? And if so, this would be about three and a half years. But friends, the point is the length of time here wasn't the important thing. The important thing that Daniel would have heard and that the original hearers would have heard is that evil's time is limited. The important thing wasn't the amount of time. The important thing was that for a time, God's people might suffer. But that suffering is temporary because evil will ultimately be defeated. And that would have given them hope. And friends, the eventual victory over Antiochus Epiphanes is still celebrated by the Jewish people today. You know, history tells us of the Maccabean Revolt went through a series of raids and military campaigns. A man by the name of Judas Maccabee and his army of rebels were eventually victorious over Antiochus Epiphanes. The temple was cleansed and it was rededicated so that proper worship could be restored. Now, while this book is not inspired scripture, the historical record of the book of 1 Maccabees records this statement in chapter 4. For eight days, they celebrated the rededication of the altar. Then Judah and his brothers and the entire congregation of Israel decreed that the days of the rededication should be observed every year for eight days. And so it is to this day, friends, the Jewish people still commemorate the eight-day celebration of Hanukkah, which is also called the Feast of Lights 
for the Feast of the Maccabees because it commemorates the victory and the rededication of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. And friends, for as stunning as Judah Maccabees' victory was, you need to understand that it wasn't his army, though, that ultimately took down Antiochus Epiphanes. Because what does history tell us? Friends, history tells us that Antiochus was returning from a military campaign when he was suddenly struck with a painful and an incurable disease. And his demise came unexpectedly and not at the hand of any man. And friends, that's exactly what Daniel's vision foresaw. Daniel chapter 8, verse 25. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. By no human hand. Friends, this is the second time in the book of Daniel we've heard that phrase. By no human hand. The first time that we heard that phrase was in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar had a great vision of a, of a statue made of many different metals, and we were told that that represented the kingdoms of this world. And then eventually a stone came, and let's hear about that stone. Daniel chapter 2, verse 45. And just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great king, God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Friends, by no human hand, the kingdoms of this world will be broken. By no human hand, the little horn was going to be defeated. By no human hand do kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. By no human hand will evil be crushed and overthrown. Friends, it happens by no human hand, but by the hand of God. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. Friends, no human hand writes history. No human hand unfolds the future. No human hand installs and removes kings. No human hand can rescue the oppressed. No human hand can overthrow evil. No human hand can, but the hand of God does. Friends, in whose hand... Are you held? The little horn of Antiochus was defeated by no human hand. And friends, this is good news because little horns have risen, continue to rise, and one day will rise. While this vision of Daniel's little horn might have found fulfillment in Antiochus' epiphanies, we find that Antiochus' actions were but a type, a foreshadowing of what was yet to come. All of this has happened before. And all of this will happen again. When Jesus was asked by his followers about the destruction of the temple and the return of the Son of Man, this is what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That that phrase, abomination of desolation, is the transposition of the phrase that we find here in verse 13. This phrase is used multiple times and will be in the upcoming visions as well. 
Friends, Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of Scripture because He's God. He wrote it. It says, let the reader of Daniel understand there's an even greater fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy coming. An even greater abomination and desolation is coming to the temple. Even greater than in the time of Daniel. Because soon the temple is going to be completely destroyed and utterly laid desolate. And that was fulfilled during the Roman-Jewish War of A.D. 66-70. to Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote a comprehensive 200-page eyewitness account of this called the War of the Jews. Josephus recorded that while the city of Jerusalem was still burning, the Roman Emperor Titus and the armies of Rome bought their legionary standards into the temple precincts, offered sacrifices there, and declared Titus to be victor. The idolatrous representations of Caesar and the Roman eagle on the standards would have been an abomination that constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. And after that abomination, the temple was completely destroyed in A.D. 70 and made utterly desolate. Church, all this has happened before. All of this will happen again. For it seems that while Jesus' words had a fulfillment in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, it doesn't preclude a further and a future fulfillment at Jesus' return. Images of abomination and desolation are represented again in the New Testament teachings about Jesus' final return. For example, we find the Apostle Paul write in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, The man of lawlessness, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This man of lawlessness is, is a figure foretold, and elsewhere he's called Antichrist. Anti simply means against. So an Antichrist is one who acts against Christ. And John says in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Church, another little horn rises, speaking blasphemous words against the Lord, opposing and exalting himself against God's order and law, seeking to disrupt the worship of God and replace it with himself. An abomination who causes desolation, like Antiochus did in 167 A.D., like the Roman Emperor Titus did in 70 A.D., Church, this is the pattern of our time. We live in the last hour. Little horns arise. Many antichrists have come and will come. Men of lawlessness rise and try to undo God's law and His good order. Many have come and will come and try to oppose and replace God. But church, remember the good news. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes was crushed by no human hand, just as the kingdoms and the powers of man are crushed by a stone cut by no human hand, so all evil, all antichrist will be crushed by no human hand. Church, our time of suffering and opposition is limited. Evil has an expiration date. For one day, every kingdom, every horn that rises in defiance, every power that exalts itself against the Lord will be crushed by no human hand. And such a message would have given the exiles of Daniel's day hope as they faced opposition and suffering. And such a message should give to the church today hope as we face any opposition and suffering. 
We need not fear any little horn, any antichrist, any power that might rise. For all evil, friends, all evil will one day be crushed by no human hand. And so are you here today trusting in the power of a human hand to save you? Are you here today trusting in the power of your own human hand to deliver you from evil? Because, friends, no merely human hand can save. The hand that will one day crush evil is the same hand that took a spike through it on the cross to pay for your evil. It's the same nail-scarred hand that reaches to you now to break the chains of your sin and rescue you from evil. It is the same hand that reaches to you now to welcome you to the family for those who will come by faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, what hand do you trust in? By what hand will you be saved? Have you trusted and taken the hand of the ancient of days? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that evil will one day be crushed. Thank you that though we face opposition and suffering at this time, it will not always be. Though many rise and they oppose you, they oppose your reign, they stand against Christ, they try to replace you, they declare themselves to be gods to whom we must bow. Thank you that we know our God is the Ancient of Days. Father, we trust not in our own hand or in any human hand. We trust not in our own strength or in any human kingdom to save us. We know that it is by no human hand that we will be saved. But rather, we rest secure. We rest in your hand, the hand of the Ancient of Days. Lead us forth with this good news and with this hope now. In Jesus' name. Amen.